Hello, and welcome to the Narrative Matters podcast, where we hear stories about experiences with the healthcare system and the people in it that highlight the important policy issues of today. It's been just over 40 years since the first cases of a condition that later became known as HIV-AIDS were reported. In many ways, the government's response to that pandemic is a textbook example of how communication during a public health crisis can mean the difference between life and death for many people. So then why, two years into the COVID-19 pandemic, does it feel like some of the lessons we learned from HIV-AIDS have been forgotten? I'm Leslie Erdelak, and today on the podcast, I'm talking to Richard Sorian, the author of this month's Narrative Matters essay on surviving two pandemics. Richard is the Senior Vice President of Communications for 340B Health. He's also a longtime journalist and Washington insider who knows a lot about U.S. healthcare policy, having worked as a special advisor for HHS Secretary Donna Shalala during the Clinton administration before becoming the Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs at HHS under President Obama. So, Richard, in your essay, you reflect on what it's been like to experience two pandemics, first with HIV-AIDS and now COVID-19. What prompted you to share your story? A couple of things really prompted this. Uh, First, just in that first few weeks and months when we were all locked up in our homes and frankly scared of what was going on and not really knowing what was next, I just had this emotion that said, "This, this isn't fair. We already went through one pandemic in my lifetime, and now we have another. And I realized that wasn't a rational thought, but it did stick in my mind. And I thought, maybe I should go back in my mind to that period and and, uh, think about it a little bit. Uh, The other thing is the pandemic, the HIV pandemic is 40 years old. A lot of people think it's done. They think it's been cured, uh, and it's not. There are still people getting sick. There are still people dying. And a new generation of people uh, are coming through the healthcare system or in the health policy world without a lot of knowledge or memory of that. So uh, it's sort of in the name of keeping memories alive, I decided I would uh, explore this subject. And in this piece, you also write that for those who've lived through this before, right, who've gone through a period defined by so much suffering and uncertainty, that talking about how to prevent and respond to a pandemic feels like an impossible task. But future pandemics are inevitable. So what keeps you going? And what would you say to people who are tired from staying so vigilant? I'd say you have every right to be tired. We're all tired uh, just uh, the last two and a half years, almost three years. I think when I try to think about it more rationally, I think we learn things each time. Sometimes we learn from positive events, things we did well. Let's make sure we keep doing that. Do it again the next time. And things we did poorly and try not to do those and put systems in place that will allow us to not make the same mistakes twice or three times or more. Uh, With the AIDS epidemic, there was a lot of um, missteps in the beginning of that uh, epidemic. Some of it was just science trying to figure things out, but some of it was public policy and uh, a real reluctance to talk frankly about, in that case, uh, sex in in particular. Uh, But every pandemic is going to be a little different, but the ability for people who are trained and knowledgeable to talk honestly and frankly to the American people makes a huge difference. 
You know, it's, it's much harder today than it was even then because social media allows so much more discourse and that's a good thing, but it, at the same time, it allows a lot of misinformation to spread quickly. So I think we're learning a lot of lessons now and hopefully we won't have to apply them to another pandemic anytime really soon. Uh, the likelihood is that at some point in our future, we'll have to do something uh, to deal with an, another condition that arises. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And now here is Richard Sorian reading his essay, Surviving Two Pandemics. Like many at the advent of COVID-19, I experienced a mixture of fear and sadness as we all tried to understand what was happening and brace for what was to come. For me, however, there were added emotions, anger and disbelief. I survived the HIV AIDS pandemic, and now this? Two pandemics in one lifetime seemed really cruel. The summer of 2021 marked the 40th anniversary of the first reports of a mysterious condition that eventually became known as HIV AIDS. Uh, the June 5, 1981 issue of the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, published by the CDC, reported on the cases of five young men in Los Angeles who were diagnosed with a rare form of pneumonia. The report noted that the men were active homosexuals. The article drew very little public attention at the time, but public health officials began to focus on a new rising threat. CDC later reported about the sudden appearance of a rare cancer called Kaposi's sarcoma, and Larry Altman, the superb medical correspondent for the New York Times, authored an article headlined, Rare Cancer Seen in 41 Homosexuals. That article launched a dialogue and a reckoning that continues to this day. In the gay community, talk of a gay cancer became louder and louder. By the end of 1981, the CDC had reported 234 deaths due to this condition, which would eventually become known as HIV-AIDS. By 2020, HIV-AIDS cost the lives of more than 700,000 Americans and more than 36 million people worldwide. And it continues to cost a million lives in this country a year. As the world slowly awoke to the reality of the HIV AIDS pandemic, I was 23. I was a cub reporter working for McGraw-Hill's Washington Report on Medicine and Health. It was a weekly newsletter read by many policymakers here in Washington and industry leaders across the country. I was assigned to cover Congress on a wide range of health policy issues. Much of the early 1980s focused on the emergence of what was called the Reagan Revolution, which saw lawmakers scrutinize Medicare, Medicaid, and a range of public health grant programs to make changes to shrink the government's footprint. But as the decade progressed, the response to HIV AIDS became a major focus for many on Capitol Hill and in the media. My career wasn't the only focus of my life. After years of turmoil, I had just come out of the closet, a fact I shared with friends and coworkers, but generally did not discuss with those whose stories I covered. As a reporter, I worried that the sources I interviewed might think my sexuality made me biased, and I was determined not to let that happen. But this split scene existence while living through and reporting on the HIV AIDS pandemic became a central focus of my life. My career would take me from journalism, which was my first true love, to government and to advocacy. Very little of the evolution was planned, but all of it seemed to be influenced by the HIV pandemic in some way. Imparting the experiences and lessons of the past 40 years would take far too many words, but one thing that keeps emerging is our basic inability as a society 
to talk about sensitive topics such as life, death, sexuality, and morality, and the very high price we pay for that failure. This is not peculiar to HIV, as we have seen with the challenges in communicating about science and public health playing out today in the midst of the COVID pandemic. With AIDS, our inability or unwillingness to communicate was a major reason the epidemic was able to take hold in the early 1980s. For example, I spent a great deal of time trying to convince my old school editor that this was a story even worth covering. I had to overcome his homophobia, frankly, and uh, of he didn't want to write about queers in a health policy newsletter. Eventually, we covered the pandemic, and frankly, we broke a number of major stories. But the struggle to communicate about the emerging epidemic spread across government. Members of Congress introduced legislation to prohibit people with HIV from teaching in schools or waiting tables in restaurants. Efforts to fund age education ran into a buzzsaw of opposition from those who thought talking about it would promote a homosexual agenda. These fights went all the way up to the White House, where cabinet members debated the content of age education classes in schools. It wasn't until September 17th, 1985, that President Reagan, who was known as the great communicator, even said the word AIDS in public. President Reagan asked his Surgeon General, C. Everett Koop, to prepare a report on the epidemic, hoping to sweep the matter under the rug. Dr. Koop's report marked an important turning point in communicating about HIV-AIDS. Much to the White House's surprise and dismay, Dr. Koop embraced AIDS education, including on condom use, and cautioned against discrimination. Many members of Congress were so pleased by Koop's report that they ordered a shorter version to be printed and mailed to every U.S. household. It's the first and so far only time the government has taken that such action. In my own life, as I began to date and become sexually active, I saw friends and neighbors suddenly losing weight and then disappearing. Living in DuPont Circle, a prominent neighborhood in Washington, D.C., I would often pass the same young men on my way to work until they too began to disappear, one by one. The early communication failures at the top of government interfered with the ability of scientists and public health professionals to respond to the disease and inform the public about the basics of prevention. Many people felt awkward talking about sex, especially gay sex. Many struggled to find ways to write about HIV prevention without offending their readers. Words like semen, anal sex, and oral sex were believed to be unfit for the public, and the words used in their place only confused and scared people. In 2018, Larry Altman was uh, interviewed by a colleague of his, and he said these euphemisms like exchange of bodily fluids left the impression that saliva from a kiss might infect you. I covered a, a congressional hearing in which one congressman asked a CDC official whether HIV could be transmitted in a steam room. The reluctance to talk about AIDS was also reflected in the annual budgets that President Reagan was sending to Congress which contained relatively small amounts for research and prevention. Fortunately, career civil servants running key offices at the CDC and NIH would testify before Congress and make it clear that much more money was needed. Leaders like Jim Curran at CDC and Tony Fauci at NIH, along with their staffs, were the truth tellers who enabled Congress to regularly exceed President Reagan's requests. 
Perhaps the most disturbing example of this opaque communication came in 1992, a full decade into the pandemic, when leaders at the CDC attempted to convince the George H.W. Bush administration that it was time for the government to speak frankly to the public about the effectiveness of condoms in preventing HIV transmission. In that year, the CDC estimated that nearly 34,000 people died in the United States of AIDS, and the disease had become the second leading cause of death among American men ages 25 to 44. I was reporting regularly on the internal debates over how to respond to the pandemic. As part of its ongoing America Responds to AIDS campaign, the CDC had storyboarded a series of AIDS education ads featuring people like Whoopi Goldberg and George Burns talking about condoms. But those ads were put on the shelf. In their place, the government unveiled a different campaign including an ad that featured several young men getting ready to play a game of schoolyard basketball. One of the young men sat on a bench to roll on a white sock. Although the action was supposed to mimic rolling on a condom, there was no mention of condoms or sex. At a March 1992 press conference, officials from the Department of Health and Human Services announced the release of these new ads. When the Assistant Secretary for Health, Dr. James Mason, asked for questions, I stood to be recognized and said, Dr. Mason, the CDC recently reported that young gay men are at the highest risk for getting infected. How does this ad speak to them? Dr. Mason, who had previously run the CDC under President Reagan, hemmed and hawed before finally saying, when the goals of science collide with moral and ethical judgment, there are certain times when science has to take a time out. I have to tell you, there were more than a few gasps in the room. As I was getting ready to leave to go to another press conference across town, I recall an HHS staffer stopping me and saying, about your question to Dr. Mason, the thing is controlling an epidemic is really like controlling a forest fire. You control it from the outside and you let the center burn. I think my jaw hit the floor. I said to him, but these aren't trees, they're people. His response was, but it's the same thing. When I got back to my office, I was telling my colleagues about this exchange. I wasn't planning on writing about the staffer's comments, but my fellow reporters insisted that I had to. Frankly, I feared that some would believe that I was letting my personal life influence my professional work. But my colleagues convinced me that it was newsworthy and must be reported. So I called another HHS employee who had been standing nearby to corroborate the post-briefing exchange. I said to him, do you remember that guy who talked to me after the press conference today? Without a pause, he said, you mean the unfortunate fire analogy? With the story confirmed, we published and braced for the response. But the angry call I received from HHS was not focused on the stunning quote from the staffer. It was to deny that Dr. Mason had said anything about a timeout. That conversation lasted about as long as it took for me to remind the caller that all of those press conferences were videotaped. HIV AIDS continued to take over much of my personal life. As I attended funerals and memorial services, candlelight vigils and protests, and I began to do volunteer AIDS education work for Whitman Walker Health, an LGBTQ healthcare provider here in the District of Columbia it was becoming increasingly hard to keep these two worlds apart. In 1993, I got a call from the office of Donna Shalala, the 
the HHS secretary appointed by President Bill Clinton, asking me to come in for an interview. I was excited by the prospect of an exclusive interview with the new secretary, but got confused when her office asked me to fax them a copy of my resume. Then it dawned on me. I was not interviewing her. She was interviewing me. The new administration was beginning to sell its health reform agenda, and resistance was strong. Secretary Shalala said to me, I, I need help communicating with the leaders in health policy. Come work for me for a year. We'll pass health care reform, and you can go back to journalism. I decided, you don't turn down a cabinet secretary, and I made the decision to make the jump. A few months before Shalala's call, my mother had died of cancer at the age of 63. Only a few months after my younger brother, Todd, had tested HIV positive. Grief and fear had become central to my daily life. I told Secretary Shalala that part of my decision to change careers was rooted in my desire to do something that would bring these two universes closer together. Todd and I were four years apart and had always been close. We shared a sense of humor that often devolved into fits of giggling even long into our adult years. When he was diagnosed as HIV positive in 1992, our family was in crisis. He moved in with our mother and his condition remained stable for a while. But things began to go swiftly downhill later that year. Once a strikingly good-looking young man who dabbled in modeling, Todd began to show the signs of his illness, and he rapidly lost weight. After our mom died in April of 1993, we found an apartment for him in New York, and I did my best to care for his needs from D.C., but in 1994, the situation got worse, and I began to worry about his ability to take care of himself. When I shared this with Secretary Shalala, her advice was, you need to move him here. And I knew she was right. So in November, we packed up his apartment and his new kitten and drove to D.C. For the next six months, I tried my best to focus on doing all I could to make Todd comfortable at home while continuing my work on HIV policy at the White House. To be honest, sometimes burying myself in work was a respite from the sadness and fear at home. For a while, he rallied, regaining his appetite thanks to a medication called Marinol, and began regaining weight. But it was clear to me that he was quickly slipping away. One evening when I was working late at the White House, Office of National AIDS Policy, I got a call from a security guard at the building that houses HHS. Todd had visited me there when he first moved to town. Well, that day, my brother had gone out and got caught in the pouring rain and became lost and disoriented. He somehow remembered where I worked and tried to find me. That lovely security guard helped him dry off and watched over him until I could get there and take him home. In April 1995, my brother died, just short of his 33rd birthday. My family held a memorial service in New York, and when I returned to D.C., I sat Shiva for him at my home with my friends. One evening, there was a surprise visitor. It was Secretary Shalala. We sat, we talked, we even had a chance to laugh at fond memories. Later that year, President Clinton hosted a White House conference on HIV-AIDS. 
when I went to an Oval Office meeting the morning of the conference, I carried one of my favorite photos of Todd in my breast pocket. As we discussed national strategies for combating the disease that had taken him from me, I wanted him as close to my heart in death as he had been in life. A few months after I started at the Office of National AIDS Policy, I heard from Melissa Shepard, the Associate Director for Communications at the CDC, who had an idea for a new public service campaign. It was Shepard and her team who had drawn up the original ad storyboards to talk about condoms back in 1992, only to see them quashed. Her team's new ad would be directly targeted to gay men, featuring images of such gay landmarks as Christopher Street in Greenwich Village and the Castro in San Francisco. I asked what I could do to help, and she said, well, the people in Atlanta don't want to do it because they think you'll say no. I assured her that wouldn't happen and promised to run interference for her in Washington if it's necessary. Melissa's team came to Washington and showed us a 30-second television ad. I found it compelling, and I said I would work on getting clearance. The next stop was the White House Domestic Policy Council and its director, Carol Rasco. We watched the ad with the staff, and Carol quickly approved. I felt compelled to explain that the visuals in the ad were well-known in the gay community and were intended to reach them. In her genteel Southern accent, she said, well, of course they are. So what? When I explained that the government had never done that before, she said, well, it's about time. Now, the ad didn't change the world. In fact, most viewers who weren't gay had no idea it was talking to the gay community. But by signaling to this affected community, it began to change the tenor of the discussion. Government public service announcements began to get more direct and eventually even talked directly about condoms. For me, it was as if I had helped something happen that really mattered to me and others like me. In 1994, the government aired the first public service announcement promoting the use of condoms. But talking about gay sex, however, would take much longer. In 2014, the CDC under President Barack Obama launched a remarkable campaign called Start Talking, Stop HIV. It included ads that not only discussed gay people, but also showed gay men flirting, holding hands, and even laying in bed together. Watching the ads, I recalled the Jim Sock ad of 1992. I smiled. It was indeed about time. In an ideal world, I would end up saying that we have learned important lessons and put them to good use when faced with a new virus causing another global pandemic. Sadly, the response to COVID-19 in many ways has become more dangerously polarized than the response to HIV-AIDS and people are dying at much faster rates during this pandemic. HIV-AIDS is a textbook example of how the government's communications during a global public health crisis can mean the difference between life and death. But I fear that some of the same lessons we learned from HIV have been forgotten or ignored. Public officials still have a tough time talking to the American people about how to protect their health. Whereas President Reagan refused to talk about HIV-AIDS for five years, President Trump's daily COVID briefings were often filled with misinformation that left the public confused. President Trump's proclamations that the virus would just go away and suggestions that it could be treated with an injection of bleach left the public reeling. 
They also serve to weaken public trust in scientists and other public health professionals. Effective government responses to public health crises must be rooted in facts and evidence. They must be frank and direct. And they should use messengers who have both the knowledge and the credibility needed to convince the public of the need to act. Even then, education campaigns aren't always successful, especially in the age of social media, where misinformation can spread rapidly. Despite the progress that we have made during these past 40 years, to those of us who have lived through this before, talking about how to prevent and respond to a pandemic seems like Sisyphus pushing that rock up the hill. But let's keep pushing. That was Richard Sorian reading his essay, Surviving Two Pandemics. Thanks for listening to the Narrative Matters podcast brought to you by Health Affairs. For more essays like the one you just heard, subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. 